0: We come to the end of our study in the book of Habakkuk. And the question comes up, how did Habakkuk get to the point that he did at the end of this book? How did we get here? It begins with Habakkuk complaining to God about the wicked state of his people, supposedly God's people. They're marked by violence. They're marked by injustice. The big question is, why does God tolerate this? Why does God tolerate wrong? By the way, one of the things that we may have glossed over is the fact that Habakkuk addresses the God of creation with the expectation, in my opinion, that God will answer him. And I can't help but wonder how many of us think that when we are praying, that when we pray that somehow we expect that God will in fact hear us and that he will answer us. God does answer Habakkuk, but not in the way I think that Habakkuk expected. I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people. If you go back to chapter 1, you will see that that is not actually the beginning of God's answer. Rather, we read in verse number 5, Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. Indeed, I think Habakkuk was amazed, but not in a positive way. I can't help but feel that there are a lot of connections between Habakkuk's situation and ours in in different ways, but something has happened that, in fact, has amazed that we probably would not have believed that such a thing was possible, and yet we find ourselves in the situation we are today. God's answer is problematic for Habakkuk because the Babylonians were a pagan and a wicked people. They are marked by two basic sins, a sense of self-law, of autonomy, and cruelty. Ironically, the same sins that Habakkuk complained about his people. So Habakkuk again has another complaint, his second complaint. But as we've seen, he does so within the context of God's character. This means that Habakkuk's complaint, his questions, are rooted in faith. In faith, Habakkuk asks, why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? As we've seen in our study, I hope that you've seen, Faith, in fact, is organic. It's not inorganic. It's not metallic. It grows, it stretches, it bends, it cracks, it heals, and then it moves ahead. In contrast, that which is inorganic, which doesn't grow or bend or heal, in fact, breaks. And oftentimes, people who have claimed a measure of faith have found that faith to break. And I think because in reality, it is not something that is alive, that is organic. In faith, Habakkuk will wait. If you look at the beginning of chapter 2, verse 1, I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. Let's be clear. Habakkuk does not ask out of idle curiosity. He's not trying to pry into the secrets of God. Um, He really wants to know. And so God answers him a second time. Chapter 2, verse 2, Then the Lord replied, Write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. We find that he is to write it down, he is to make it plain, and he is to write it in such large letters that a runner running by can read it. It's almost like a billboard. So that... People will know what is going to happen. Verse number three For the revelation awaits an appointed time, it speaks of the end and it will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it, it will certainly come and will not delay. I think the thing that strikes me about these two verses is that, first of all, God wants the revelation to be plain that is, that people will be able to read it but I think it also requires the work of God in their hearts to understand what is going to happen. Um, as I mentioned in, earlier in this series, this verse is actually quoted in the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, verse 37, but there it refers to the second coming. So there is a clarity, and yet there is a certain lack of clarity here. We don't, Habakkuk did not have full understanding, and neither would the people with whom he shared this message. Then the Lord proceeds to pronounce five woes on the Babylonians, spelling out the judgment that is coming. I want to point out that at the beginning of God's answer, near the beginning, we hear, the just or the righteous will live by his faith. And at the end of the Lord's answer, we hear, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. I asked last Sunday that if faith is the means of relationship between God and man, which God has ordained, should not our emotions be involved? Emotions are, in fact, a necessary part of human relationships. And as we've seen, Habakkuk is on an emotional roller coaster. And that's okay, because our heritage is one of extreme and conflicting emotions. If you doubt me, if you wonder if that's true, Try reading the Psalms. The reality of extreme emotion is found in verse number one of chapter three. This is the title of this psalm, of this prayer. A, a prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, on Shigayanoth. Shigayanoth is the plural of Shigayan, which is found at the beginning of Psalm seven. Um, it means to reel, to stagger like a drunken person. And, and where does this happen? Where is this, this reeling, this staggering? Hap- it's happening in prayer. It is a prayer of Habakkuk. And in what follows, Habakkuk is shown and records a revelation of God's work in the past with strong overtones for the future. What will happen to Judah? What will happen to Babylon? And what will happen in the future beyond? And what he has shown and records as like a tsunami. It's like a tidal wave that covers everything in its path. We are told of twin themes that reflect Habakkuk's prayer. They run through it as threads. In wrath, remember mercy. In one brief instant, it seems that Habakkuk has been shown events that are centuries apart. He's not shown them in chronological order. But what he witnesses is wrath and mercy, violence and deliverance. He begins with the glory of God. If you look at verse number three in chapter three, God came from Teman, the holy one from Mount Paran, Selah. His glory covered the heavens and his praise filled the earth. His splendor was like the sunrise, rays flash from his hand where his power was hidden and I think it, up to this point, we're with Habakkuk. The glory of God shining from Sinai, though Sinai is not mentioned, but it, it shines all the way to the southern part of Canaan and in between. And it covers the heavens, it fills the earth like a sunrise. I'm not so sure we like the rest of this. Verse 5 Plague went before him, pestilence followed his steps. He stood and shook the earth. He looked and made the nations tremble. The ancient mountains crumbled and the age old hills collapsed. His ways are eternal. I saw the tents of Cushan in distress, the dwellings of Midian in anguish. The glory of God is seen in plague and pestilence. Yeah, I think being in the midst of a pandemic, we might struggle with that. But here we begin to find the twin themes of wrath and mercy, of violence and deliverance. The plagues on Egypt, particularly the tenth plague, which resulted in the death of all the firstborn of Egypt. The defeat of Cushan by Othniel and the defeat of Midian by Gideon. Each one of these led to the deliverance and the redemption of God's people. In the verses that follow, we hear more of the wrath of God. But it leads to an important question for, for Habakkuk. It seems that God is angry with creation, with what people today would call nature. We can see where he'd be angry with human beings, with nations, with political structures. Um, but is he angry with creation? Verse number eight. Were you angry with the rivers, O Lord? Was your wrath against the streams? Did you rage against the sea when you rode with your horses and your victorious chariots? You uncovered your bow. You called for many arrows. Selah. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. Torrents of water swept by. The deep roared and lifted its waves on high. Sun and moon stood still in the heavens at the glint of your flying arrows, at the lightning of your flashing spear. In wrath, you strode through the earth and in anger you thresh the nations. The emphasis here is on wrath. In many ways it speaks of a world turned upside down to the point where the sun and the moon stood still in the heavens. So the emphasis here is on God's wrath. But then it turns to deliverance. Verse thirteen: You came out to deliver your people, to save your anointed one. You crushed the head of the land of the leader of the land of wickedness. You stripped him from head to foot. Selah. One more word before we move on, and that's the word selah. As I've said, word unclear about what it meant. It seems to have been a liturgical term. We heard it today in the reading from the Old Testament we think, it seems, that it was an indication for the congregation to be silent, to pause. And as they are silent and as they pause, the instruments play, and I would say play loudly, fortissimo. It gives the people a chance to consider what they have just sung. We find it 74 times in the Old Testament. This is the only place outside of the book of Psalms that we find it it usually comes after a a statement that would provoke great emotion. We find it three times in this chapter. The first time, and I think it's at critical points, the first time is in verse number three, God came from Tima and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. Verse nine, you uncovered your bow, you called for many arrows, Selah. And then here in verse 13, you crushed the leader of the land of wickedness, you stripped him from head to foot, Selah. In the first, it is a response to God's glory, the sunrise, his glory covering the earth. As I mentioned before, I can almost see people covering their eyes or lowering their heads just not to be blinded by God's glory. The second time is in response to God's initiative. And here, I think one might cover one's ears because what one hears is so awful. And here it is a response to God's actions. God in wrath is going to punish the wicked. We're reminded once again that, God's pur- that the Lord's coming has two purposes, wrath and mercy. There is violence and there is deliverance or salvation. The things that Habakkuk tells us about in his prayer meant judgment and destruction for some, but it also meant salvation and deliverance for others. This is the principle that we find running through this passage. It's there in the stories that are hinted at. Names are not given, but by the, the descriptions, we know what he's talking about. Noah and the flood, Moses and the plagues, Joshua and the Amorites, Othniel and Cushan, Gideon and Midian, and more. The principle that runs through this is that in the accomplishing of redemption, there is much violence. In the accomplishing of deliverance, there is much struggle. In the story of Noah, the Lord killed all of humanity except for eight people whom he saved. Israel, the Lord killed the firstborn of Egypt that the Egyptians would let the Israelites go. This is the lesson that Habakkuk struggles to learn. It's a lesson that we struggle to learn. But we should be reminded that it all points to the Lord Jesus, that in his death, a violent death, salvation is the response, is the result. Isaiah 53, surely he took up our infirmities And carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Without the violence, the death of Jesus, there is no deliverance and there is no salvation. But Habakkuk isn't finished. The prayer isn't finished. I don't know if you noticed, we stopped at verse 13 last Sunday. But we continue today at verses, verse 14. Let's look at verses 14 and 15. With his own spear you pierced his head. When his warriors stormed out to scatter us, gloating as though about to devour the wretched who were in hiding. He trampled the sea with your horses, churning the great waters. Verse 15, the second part, seems to point once again to the Red Sea, Israel's deliverance out of slavery, out of Egypt. And one might say, uh, Habakkuk, you've you've already told us about this. You've already mentioned this. Why repeat yourself? Because the Exodus is the redemptive event in the Old Testament par excellence. It is the redemptive event. In the New Testament, it is the death of the Lord Jesus. In the Old Testament, it is the Exodus. But let's go back to verse 14, because I want you to consider how it opens. With his own spear, you pierced his head. On the face of it, this simply sounds like uh, an overly gory description of killing someone. You take his spear and you stick him in the head with it. I would suggest to you that it's much more than that. Let me read you something that may be familiar to you. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. This is what God said to Satan, which came as a result of the fall of Adam and Eve and the human race. God will win the final victory, and the head of the serpent. The head of Satan will be crushed. With his own spear, with his own spear, you will pierce his head. Paul wrote to the Romans near the end of the book of Romans, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. What Habakkuk sees, and I think doesn't fully understand, is the victory that Jesus would win on the cross. That the violence done against him, against Jesus, not only would bring deliverance and salvation for us, but it would mean the defeat of Satan. Verse number 16. In my notes, I've titled this The End of the Ride. If we imagine Habakkuk's prayer to be on an emotional roller coaster, I would say at verse 16, he gets off, the ride is over. He disembarks. I heard and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. I'm not a fan of roller coasters. It's been decades since I've been on one. But what he says at the beginning of verse number 16 describes very much the way I felt every time I got off a roller coaster. We find here, however, a change of tempo in this, in this psalm. From an agitated spirit, someone who can barely control himself, to a certain calmness and faith. He's still a bit shook up, but the ride has ended. There's still more to come. Habakkuk has heard this through the ears of a waiting servant. He saw it. He has accepted what God has said. But at this point, he's totally trashed from the ride. However, he will wait patiently for the disaster God has said was coming. If you look at the rest of verse sixteen, yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. I would argue that the battle of faith had been won and had been fought and won in Habakkuk's heart. The experience for which this faith was needed is yet to come. It's not there yet. The disaster that will happen to Judah and then ultimately to Babylon, that's down the road. But the battle has been fought and won. By God's grace, Habakkuk has the faith he needs to face the coming days. Now he can look to whatever may come and meet it by God's grace with quiet confidence. Not fatalism. Well, whatever's going to happen, that's what's going to happen. No, he can do so with faith. And we hear the reality of this faith in verses 17 and 18. It's been described as one of the greatest expressions of faith to be found anywhere. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails, and the fields produce no crop, Though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. In verse 17, there's a double triad. There are three, twice, three things are mentioned which speak not only of prosperity, if you wish, but of basic necessities, the very life of a community, of a nation. The fig trees, grapes on the vines, olives, as a crop it's the first three and then the second three the fields the food that comes from them the sheep that are in the pen and the cattle that are in the stalls without them there will be poverty there will be destruction there will be destitution and desolation all of this will happen in a land that was called the land flowing with milk and honey but what Habakkuk sees could happen is that it's all taken away and yet if this happens without them Habakkuk says I will rejoice in the Lord I will be joyful in God my Savior how did this happen he's been on this roller coaster and now he gets off and he makes this astounding statement of faith If faith is perceiving and believing the truth and living as though it were the truth, how are we to have faith? We've seen this the past weeks. With our hearts, that is our will. With our souls, the seat of our emotions. The mind, our intellect, with our strength. This is where it all hits the road, if you wish. The external world. In each part, we are to have faith with humility, with trust, with belief and with action. In Habakkuk, we've already seen the humility. We've seen him receiving and believing the truth. Now he has reached the point of trust. Now he trusts God. After a roller coaster ride of emotional highs and lows, Habakkuk concludes in verse number 19 The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go on the heights. The Sovereign Lord is my strength. This is not a grin and bear it confession. This is not a call to hang on for dear life. It is a statement that God is our strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. It it points to swiftness but also to firm-footedness. He enables me to go on the heights. This is victory. This is deliverance. This is not escapism. It is not that God's going to get me out of this mess. It is, in fact, that he will be with me. This is almost verbatim from Psalm 18, verse 33. It's a psalm written by David. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to stand on the heights. What was Psalm 18 about? The title is this. For the director of music of David, the servant of the Lord, he sang to the Lord the words of this song when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. It's a song of deliverance. A song that speaks of trust in a sovereign God. And this is what Habakkuk concludes. That no matter what happens, he will, in fact, rejoice. He will be joyful. He will have the Lord as his strength. I don't know if you're keeping track, but you may be thinking, Damon, you mentioned the heart, humility. You mentioned the soul, which is trust. You've mentioned the mind, to receive and believe the truth. And we've seen these in Habakkuk that he has, in fact, spoken with humility, and now, getting off the ride, he has trust. He has received and believed the truth of God. But I haven't mentioned strength to act on the truth. It's there in the very last line of this book. It's almost sort of an, an aside. For the director of music on my stringed instruments, that is to say, we are to sing this prayer. It isn't simply something that we trust, we are to act. And the act of singing, in fact, is an act of faith. It was Augustine who said that he who sings a hymn prays twice, and our singing, in fact, is a declaration of faith that we believe what God says to be true. the conclusion of the matter. I thought of studying this book when the pandemic broke out. And then I began to think, if someone had asked any one of us back in January or December about the state of our nation, I'm fairly certain that in our own ways, whatever your political affiliation is, whatever your view of the world is, I think we would all agree that, in fact, Things weren't the way they should be. We would bemoan the state of affairs and perhaps for different reasons. We would, I think, all agree there need to be some significant changes. And then the pandemic hit, a plague, if you wish. was inflicted on us and some would say, perhaps even by a foreign power. And our perspectives changed where back in January, we would have bemoaned the state of affairs. When March came, there began to be a sense, like after Pearl Harbor, after 9-11, we as a nation would come together, we'd rally together, and we would do whatever needed to be done to defeat this plague. In the face of the frailty of human life and the seeming randomness of this plague, people pulled together. We felt, I think, fairly secure Um, in our strength as a nation, that we would, in fact, be one again. We would pull together. The past few days has challenged that view. In short, I think we have been on a roller coaster of sorts. And we are not sure where this ride will take us and when it will end. But I am convinced that we can learn from Habakkuk from his complaints, his questions, from his struggles, from his reeling and staggering. And by God's grace, we will, each one of us, come to the place where we can agree with Habakkuk and we can say, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my savior. We really don't know where this is all going at this point in our history. We know ultimately where it's going, the return of the Lord Jesus. But in a time when people are fearful, and perhaps we are as well, when we wonder what's going on, we wonder why God isn't doing something about this, may we learn from Habakkuk. May we be Marked by humility. May we trust God. We, may we believe what He says. And then by His grace, put it into practice. In our prayer, praying, in our singing, in our living. May we come to the conclusion, something we should have known all along, but now it's really serious time. It's not just a a thing to while away some time on Sunday, now comes to the reality that our faith, our trust, is to be in God. Let's pray together. Our Father, where we find ourselves is, is something unique for us. Somehow we imagine that no one has ever had it as bad as us, and that's plainly ridiculous. When we look at human history and the plagues that have come upon us, uh, things have been much worse than this. And as our brothers and sisters have struggled in the past, we will struggle also. But in faith, may we come to trust you And may we do so with humility. May we be like Habakkuk and say, no matter what, we will trust in the Lord our God. As each one goes through their own experience, we're all on a journey, go on a roller coaster ride. May we look to you and may we trust you. Again, we pray for our nation during this time of chaos, that you would bring peace for the world at the time of this pandemic, that in your grace, you would bring it to an end. But above all, that you would bring humanity to yourself. That in dark times they would come to see the light of your truth. Hopefully through us. We thank you for this day, this Sunday, the beginning of a new week. May we have a sense of your presence as we walk through the world in the coming week. May we pray for one another. Above all, may we trust you.